comes from 1 John 4. And we'll start reading at uh, verse 7. It's 1 John 4. We'll read to chapter 5, verse 5. This is 1 John 4. We'll begin reading at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears is not being perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Thus far, our scripture reading The text for our message today is from 1 John 4 and then 
verses 7 through 12. And uh, I'll read that again, once again. So that's 1 John 4, starting at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Thus far our text. Brothers and sisters, some time ago I stumbled upon a online thread or a discussion forum on the internet. And it had a most unusual title. And the title was, How Does It Feel to Never Have Been Loved by Anyone? And rather interesting answers and one person answered with this answer she said feeling unloved throughout your life makes you constantly afraid that someone will hurt you as though you are a shameful freakish mistake a cosmic defect every single day she says is a struggle just to be all you want is to seek out something you never had but it is something that can never be found. That's one answer. Here's another one from another fellow. He said, I have to say, feeling unloved is possibly the most painful and excruciating experience of all. To go through your whole life and not having anyone, not even your own mother, love you. The expression that you are nobody until somebody loves you is probably the most poignant expression in human history. You really do feel like nothing. You don't even need to die, as you are dead already. You may wonder, why would I read these depressing statements on Sunday morning? In fact, why would I open with such statements? Well, the reason I would read these two statements is because I want to make an argument about the primacy and the importance of love. Our passage today is about love. And these statements teach us that love is not something that's optional. It's not something that's peripheral or fringe to the Christian life. It's actually central to who humans are. Human beings cannot exist without love. The Beatles even knew that when they said, love, it seems, is all you need. People are wired to give and receive love. But the problem with love in our world 
is that there's not enough of it, is there? There's another song for that too. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing there's just too little of. And deep down, I think most of us know this. Most of us don't have enough love. We don't receive enough love and we don't give enough love. And the next question we need to ask then is, what do we do about that? We know there's not enough love in this world. So what should we do? How should we respond to that crisis? Should we throw up our hands and admit that it doesn't really matter? It's okay to have mediocre love? It's okay that certain people in this world are not loved? Or maybe we can distract ourselves by finding what I would call lesser loves? Pets, career, hobbies, things to keep us busy that don't really offer love? Or maybe a third option, we can blame other people. The fact that there's not enough love in the world can lead us to point the finger at someone else's fault. The question, right? What do we do when we don't feel the love? This is what another person on the same thread said, and I find her comment illuminating. I'll read it to her. She says, All around us we see people happy with mediocrity. A job that's good enough, a spouse who is well, not bad. A life that is good. And she says, frankly, it scares me. I do not want to be like that, to be mediocre. And that is a major reason why I feel unloved. Because I seek a love that is great, not just good, a love that is absolute and not merely convenient. And you know what? She hits the point right on the head. She's not a Christian by any indication, yet she gets it. The problem with most of us, if not all of us, is that we have a certain level of love to give and we receive certain levels of love. But we don't really experience a truly satisfying, full love. And too often, the problem is that we're satisfied with too little. And that's the point. And so the question that I want to ask you today is this. Is there a place or a person in which you can find the truly great love that you need? Is there a truly great, unswerving, steadfast, loyal love? Is that possible? Does it exist? Can you buy it? Can you look for it somewhere? Because in our passage today, the Apostle John says, yes, there is a place where you can be loved. There is a place of steadfast, eternal love. There's a place and a person you can know in which you will never lack love. Apostle John says that love is real and it comes from God. In fact, it is God. And John also says, you know, God doesn't hoard that love. God wants to give that love to you. And also, he wants to give it to you in such a way that you can pass it on to other people. This is our theme for today. From God flows our love for one another. We'll see one, he is love. Two, he showed us love. And three, he is seen through love. So let's read our opening verse again. 
We'll see how John can make such a dramatic argument. And notice our, our verse 7, our first verse. It begins with this. Beloved, let us love one another. Now, let us love one another. In the original, this is a command. John is saying, members of Ancaster Canadian Reformed Church, love one another, do that. That's the force of, of this command. Now you might say, well, that seems obvious. Of course we're supposed to love one another. But maybe a deeper question that we need to ask is why? Why would John be able to command Christians that they have to love one another? How could that be possible? Well, John answers that right away. He says, look, you need to love one another. Why? For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. John's argument is actually really simple. Listen, if you know who God is and you know God, you're going to love people. That's just going to be how it is. It's a straightforward cause and effect argument. A Christian is someone who loves. It cannot be otherwise. Now, I need to digress at this point because if you're commanded to love, then maybe we should understand what love is, shouldn't we? What is love anyway? What are we actually being told to do? When we say love in this passage, are we talking about happy feelings? Are we talking about the irrational feelings that we experience during dating days? Are we talking about the fast-paced heartthrob? The irrational desire to spend all waking hours together? Calling each other honey pie and other such cute names? Is that what we're talking about in this passage? Or when we talk about love, are we talking about I love my new phone or I love my favorite cheese? Is that what we're talking about? No. Because John is using the Greek word agape in this passage. And agape refers to a certain kind of love. A love that is far more a commitment or an attitude than feelings or emotions. One commentator says this about agape. He defines it. He says, Love, agape love, is a strong commitment to seek one another's highest good. In all circumstances, at any cost. It's a moral attitude dedicated to another's good. Here's the kicker. Whether or not that person is lovable, worthy, or responsive. I'm going to repeat that. This is really, really challenging. Agape love is a strong commitment to seek someone else's highest good in all circumstances at any cost. It's a moral attitude dedicated to another's good. Not yours, someone else's highest good. Whether or not, listen well, whether or not that person is lovable, worthy, or responsive. As C.S. Lewis said it, agape is all giving, not getting. Now, I think words don't quite capture love, do they? And so, 
Beyond this definition, I want to use a story to try to reinforce the point. This is a story from a true story from a Christian woman. Her name is Catherine Wolfe. It's from the book Hope Heals. If you've ever read that book, it's fairly popular. And most, Ms. Wolf is an aspiring model in California. She's married with a husband in law school. His name is Jay. Both are in their early 20s. They live in California. Everything is rosy. But on April 21, 2008, Ms. Wolf suffers a massive brainstem stroke. It nearly paralyzes her, and worst of all, for her as a model, it disfigures her beauty. Here's the thing. She says this about her husband. She says, Jay, for months on end, every single day, now I quote, he did so many things any man should never have to do. Jay, instead of leaving, stayed to take care of her. She, she continues. He did so many things any man should never have to do, much less one at our age. He flossed my teeth, he put on my lipstick, he lifted me on and off every machine at the gym. He brushed and blow-dried my hair, he dressed me for therapy. He took me to the bathroom every single time I had to go, and even shaved my armpits. She, now that's love. Now that's love, she says. And she continues. Even when we were in the middle of an argument, he had to put ointment on the scars in my bad eye. The physicality of our interaction was an ongoing lesson of what? Sacrificial love. Jay also had to become Mr. Mom, and he embraced the role. Jay loved me without asking for anything in return. I felt so uncomfortable, so unlovely in my new skin, yet he made me feel beautiful and desirable. End quote. You see, Ms. Wolf lost her original beauty to the stroke. She lost most of her mobility. These people are in their early 20s. Everything is ahead of them, and now it seems like nothing is ahead. She requires daily physical care. She's a burden. And her husband had a choice to make. He could have left. He could have hired people to take care of her, although he probably didn't have enough money. But no, he quit law school and he stayed home to take care of her. There was no question. He loved his wife with agape love. Probably not perfectly. He's still a man. He was willing to care for his wife graciously and compassionately even though he could receive what seemed like very little in return. You see, this is what John is talking about in 1 John 7, or 1 John 4 verse 7. When we read our passage and you read love, that, think of this story, that is what God is asking you to do. He's not asking someone else to do it for you, he's asking you to do that. God, God in this passage is asking you, or let me repeat that, God is telling you that if you belong to him, your job, your purpose is to seek one another in this building's 
highest good in all circumstances. Without any, at any cost, without expectation of return. Now at this point you might respond and you might say to me, or maybe you're seeing this in your head, that seems really, really hard. I don't really want to do that. It doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun to love my fellow brothers and sisters that much. And you're probably thinking the same thing that I'm thinking as I read this passage. Why would I want to do this? What's in it for me to love my fellow brothers and sisters that much? Why would I give up what I want for the sake of others here? There's lots of people here that I don't like, you might be saying to yourself. Why would I give up what I want to serve people I don't like? You know, if that's what you're thinking, you're thinking the right question. Because you're right. There is no human reason why you should love your fellow brother and sister in this building as much as Jay loves his wife, Catherine. There's no human reason why you should do that. If this is a human life and there's nothing divine in this world, then it's completely reasonable not to love your fellow brothers and sisters that much. But brothers and sisters, you're sitting in a church. There's a reason why you're in a church. It's because you believe in Jesus Christ, I hope. If you don't now, soon I hope you do. And if you believe in Jesus Christ and you believe that there's a God and a Father in heaven then you're not meant to live a human existence. You're starting to live according to a divine way of living. You see, that's the great secret of why we're in church, isn't it? That there is a God, that he loves us, and that he sent his son to die for you. And more than that, he sent the Holy Spirit to live in you. Which means that you are being changed by a divine force inside of you, a divine person inside of you. And that changes you and it does something to you. Indeed, we're still sinners. We won't ever be perfect in this life, but we will begin to change. And one of the primary changes that happens to a person whom God knows is that they begin to love people. They begin to give up their own desires for the good of other people. And that makes perfect sense because of what John says next. Look at what John says. Who is God anyway that we would start to love one another? God is love. And if God is love, then it makes perfect sense that when he dwells in us, we would begin to love one another. Now let's spend a little bit of time on this massive statement, God is love, to make sure we get it right. Then we'll go back to our argument. When we're saying God is love, what's going on here? What's not going on? To say that God is love doesn't mean, first of all, that God is not holy or not just or all these other things that God is also. It's not the point. God's love never compromises the fact that he's holy and just in these other things. Let's dispel that myth right now. We can never love someone while disobeying God's law. That doesn't make any sense. It's better to say that God's love is holy and God's love is just. 
Secondly, to say that God is love does not mean that God is pure emotion. God's love may have emotions and components like that, but it's better to say that God's love is more that we would understand as an attitude or a commitment. God's love does not ebb and flow like your love does. It's not how it works. It's constant and always present. And thirdly, to say that God is love, you know, that's actually an eternal statement because God is three in one. Think about it. If you believed in Allah, if you're a Muslim, Allah is one, right? So if Allah is eternal, everything, everything, then Allah cannot be said to be a loving God. Cannot be. Because to love someone, you have to have another person to love. But because we believe that God is three in one, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we can say God is eternally loving. God has always been loving within the Trinity. God loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. And now, in a sense, as we begin to know God, what's happening in the Trinity is now spilling out to us. We're sharing in something eternal when we love in this building with these people. It's a remarkable thing. But as much as we talk about God as love, it's a little bit abstract, isn't it? We should move to our second point because John, our second point, John is going to talk about examples of God's love to help us grasp it. That's in verses 9 and verses 10. The second point, he showed us love. Now, John starts with a highly abstract expression, God is love, and then in verse 9 and verse 10, he moves forward. Now, verse 9, let's read first. Look what John says, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In other words, in this, the, the love of God is revealed. It's shown to us. Okay? How? In that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So, how do we know that God is love? How do we actually know that or see that? Well, we see it through the sending of Jesus Christ. The fact that God sent Jesus Christ into the world shows that God is actually loving. It also shows us that God's love results in actions. He does something with his love for you and I. And he sacrifices things for you because he loves you. His love is not purely an emotion or an abstract concept. God's love is tangible. Then we can go to verse 10, which the same concept comes again with a slightly different focus. Verse 10. In this is love. Okay, what's love? Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now notice this verse is similar to the previous verse, but there's one big difference. The point is this. It's not that we loved God first. It's that God loved us first. Why does that matter? The point is that God, way before you ever decided to love him, when you were in a state far from being lovable, God decided to love you. Maybe we could call this concept grace. Grace is when a love or favor that's given regardless 
of the worth or the deservedness of the recipient. That's grace. And so we see that God's love is gracious. He loves people who don't deserve it. He's so gracious that he sent Jesus Christ to be a propitiation. In other words, to be a sacrifice that takes the wrath of God upon himself for your sake. And so the big point here, brothers and sisters, is that the cross of Jesus Christ and the coming of Jesus is the definition of love. What Jesus did and who he was on this earth shows us what love is. We see on the cross that God made a sacrifice for you. He did something for you. God was gracious to you in a sacrificial way when he sent Jesus Christ to die for you. Now this is interesting because John's not done yet, if you notice. So notice, notice what the progression, right? God is love. Highly abstract theological concept. Now John has demonstrated the concept. And now let's look what he does in verse 11. Because now the, the, the abstract concept is going to touch down in your daily life. John's clever this way. Look what it says in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us that he sent Jesus to die, we also ought to love one another. See how this is circling home in a hurry? If the cross is action, sacrifice, grace, mercy, all of those things, then we ought to pay attention because this influences how you live. Because what John's saying here, he's saying, look, the way God loves is now a paradigm or a template for the way that you are supposed to love. God's love, the way God loves is completely relevant to the way you live every day. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God loves graciously to those who don't deserve it, then so should we. If God is willing to give and give and give and give for you with no, no option of return, then so should you to other people. If Jesus was willing to die for you, are you willing to die for your fellow brothers and sisters in this building? That is the point. Let's get practical. When someone needs a meal, are you willing to go out and get them a meal? When someone needs a ride to go to the doctor or something, are you willing to give them a ride? When Campfire needs staff and counselors, are you willing to help out? Are you willing to associate with brothers and sisters who might be different than you? Are you willing to go out and give, show love to people in this building who need it, who you don't really like? If you're an office bearer, do you do your task graciously? Or do you only serve those who you like to serve? If you're a parent, is life about you or is life about your children? Or if you're a teacher, do you do your task for the money or do you do it for more? The point is, brothers and sisters, we have to look at ourselves here. Does your membership in this church reflect the agape love of God? 
We're probably not. We're sinful, but it still bears reflecting on. The membership in this church goes way beyond showing up and talking to your friends. If that's what church is to you, then you've forgotten Jesus. Then this building is not a divine place. It's a human place then. If the sum total of your membership in this church is showing up, talking to the people you like after church, and then going to grandma's for lunch, you are missing the point. You have entirely forgotten what's written in this book. Because your membership in this church is a total commitment. And yet, okay, and at this point you might say, don't guilt me, don't guilt me, that's fine. You're right, I shouldn't guilt you. But it's not really the point of what's going on here. Your membership in this church is a total commitment, and it's worth asking why. Why is your membership a total commitment? Why? Well, God just told you. Your membership in this church is a total commitment because Jesus is totally committed to you. Jesus loved you so much that he was nailed to a cross. He suffered the hellish wrath of God, something you and I can, cannot even fathom. He was whipped. All so that you could experience the overflowing love of God, and not only just today and tomorrow, but for an eternity. That is what Jesus is doing for you. And so the question, it's a very simple logic. If Jesus does that for you, then you've got to be ready to do that for your fellow brothers and sisters. That's the logic. It's very simple. It's very, very difficult. It's the most difficult logic in the Bible, I would say. Love is the highest of values, and it's the most difficult thing to deny our selfish, sinful nature. Fundamentally, what happened in Genesis 3 was that we chose ourselves rather than God. And now to deny that essential rebellion and go back towards loving God, it's extremely difficult. But it's what we're called to do. And we're not called to do it without being given the strength of the Holy Spirit. And so the vertical love of God, brothers and sisters, goes into us and the Spirit reflects us out to horizontal. Now let's finish with our third point, our short third point, which might even be the most profound truth. It's one step beyond. Our Our third point, he is seen through love. Now notice what it says in verse 12. John, he had, John has one more thing to say to us on this point. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. Okay. What John's saying, listen, no one has ever fully seen all who God is and comprehended and totally understood God. On this side of heaven, that's nearly impossible. We have God's revelation, but even that doesn't give us everything. Okay? But John says, look, There is a way to understand God and to know God and to see him in this world. How? But, he says, if we love one another, God abides in us. In other words, if you love one another, you show that God is real. He abides in you. He lives in you. God can be recognized by the love that you show to your neighbor and your fellow brother and sister. 
When you brought a meal graciously this week, you showed God. When you made a visit to a struggling brother and sister or you came to comfort them or you gave them, you gave them a check or whatever, if you did it selflessly and graciously, you showed who God is to that person. And John wants one more thing to say. If we love one another, God's love is perfected. In other, in other terms, it reaches its goal. It reaches its purpose. And so, brothers and sisters, do you understand what's going on here? If you show true self of sacrificial love to each other in this building, you show people a glimmer of the divine. God becomes real to people in a vivid way. Now, I know that the Reformed tradition says it's all about the Word of God. It's all about the Word of God, and that is true. It is all about the Word of God. But you have a part to play in how the Word works in a living way in your life. The Bible talks about this concept of witness. And when you show love to each other, you are participating in a witness to Jesus Christ and God himself. Your love is not irrelevant to the cause of the gospel. The fact is, there's a huge gospel in the fact that God doesn't just save us, but he provides us with communities by which we can be loved by. If God loved us so much that he would send Jesus Christ, he loved us even more and that he would send the Spirit and our fellow brothers and sisters to help us. That we can become demonstrators and carriers of God's love and reflectors of God's love. And so suddenly we realize, brothers and sisters, that the good news of Jesus Christ isn't 2,000 years away from us. It's not far away. It's not hidden in a book. The good news of Jesus Christ is changing you as we speak. It's operating inside of you. It's meant to be in you. You are a reflection of the living word in your heart. Not because you're such a great person, but because God loves you so much and his love is never, ever changing. If he chose to love you, you are going to be loved and you're going to change. And that's what God's doing here right now. This is a place of God. God works here. And the effect is, brothers and sisters, that despite our flaws, and they are many, people should ever so slightly begin to see Christ through your fellowship. They can see him as you die to your own sins and your own selfishness. They can see him as you are resurrected through the Spirit's work in you. And so, brothers and sisters, worship your God. Know him that you may become him to each other. Amen.